ladies and gentlemen, it's your boy again. It's Wajid. Thank you very much for tuning in tonight on tonight's show. And tonight we have an incredibly special guest. This woman is a full-time Olympian. She's not only had amazing battles on the track, she's also had personal and amazing battles off the track, which we'll get into. She's part of UK Athletics. She's been working with EDF. She's involved in diversity. She's, as I said, a full-time Olympian and an amazing, amazing athlete. She's done it at the juniors. She's done it at the Europeans. She's done it at the Commonwealth. She's done it at the Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege and honor to introduce the one and only Donna Fraser. Donna, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. Looking Donna. forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah, it should be. It should be good, right? So, I give. I've given you the. I've given you the floor. So, please, if you just want to introduce yourself and sort of quickly. A brief background on, on yourself and everything. Absolutely. So, as you said, a four times Olympian, been in the sport for many years. Um, it's been my life, it's in my blood, it's ingrained, as it were. You know, once you're, as they say, once an Olympian, always an Olympian, both on and off the track. So, um, I, along my side of my career, I worked as well, um, simply because my parents wouldn't allow me just to be an athlete. They, they want me to have a proper career, as it were. They didn't see sport as a proper career. Um, but yeah, it, 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 taught me, it taught me a lot of lessons. Um, and I can understand why they said that, because obviously, as a sports person, it's not always guaranteed that that will be your career. And injury can set in. You just don't know what's around the corner. So I'm, I'm really pleased they made me do that. Um, so then now when I retired, I was able to get into the full flow of a career. Um, so yeah, now I work at UK Athletics. I have two roles there. One is one you mentioned, um, Edie and I lead. Um, and what that encompasses is around our core values and behaviours, embedding those throughout our practices and our policies. And the other is domestic athletics operations manager. A bit of a mouthful, so I can never say both of them at the same time. Just slightly, um, just slightly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, I've been at UK Athletics now for three and a half years. Terrific. So let's take it all the way back. You started your you started training with the Croydon Harriers, I believe. I did indeed. When when did you sort of realise? It's not to be an arrogant question, but when did you realise you were sort of a cut above everyone else sort of thing? Like, you thought, you know what, I'm fairly good at this whole athletic thing. <laughs> well, I am, I'm quite old now. So back then, athletics was a hobby. Right. It was something that I did just like playing netball and basketball at school. Um, I, I was talking about this the other day. In fact, my first competition was when I was eight years old for my primary school and I was the youngest in my athletics team. So I was just thinking more like, don't let the big girls down at all. You know, I'm the only eight year old here. I have to do my best. Um, but yeah, my sister, she loved athletics. So we watched it on TV all the time. And I always think back to the 1984 Olympic Games, watching that on TV in Los Angeles and thinking, I want to get there. But as I said, it was a hobby. So, I, I, you know, you see it on TV and you're still doing it as a hobby. I didn't even envisage that it would become a career for me. Um, but it was my primary school teacher. She was the one that says, you know, you've got a talent, uh, just always be determined. And then I was eventually uh, picked up by our local club, Croydon Harriers, which I'm still a member and join the club there and and the rest is history really so it, it was the club that really identified the talent 
I didn't see it other than another opportunity that I could make new friends. That's a, it's really interesting you say that because sometimes a lot of people just sort of know or this their parents that push them sort of thing. So it's very different. It's very sort of different hearing the fact that your parents had a very much old school mentality, a lot like um, within the Asian community and, and a lot in the ethnic community, which is very much if you don't have a degree or sort of a solid education behind you, um, or you sort of go for an artsy level career, it's not really a career. So it's really interesting you say that. Um, Definitely. So I guess what was, what was sort of your training schedule like at that sort of early age, you know, before you, before you sort of picked it up full time? So at that age, I started joining the club probably, uh, properly and competed them when I was 11. Um, so it was just literally just training up until then before I was able to compete for them. But um, training then was just Tuesday and Thursday evenings and Sunday mornings. Uh, and that was it, three days a week. And, and that probably seemed like a lifetime when you're young. But if I was to look back on what I was doing then, it was just like probably an hour and a half maximum. Um, but yeah, as, as things started to progress and I started to do well, um, is when things started to ramp up. <coughs> so when, schools. Sorry, so when, I guess going back to it, when, when was your sort, of first, uh, your sort of first moment where you thought, oh my God, I've actually done really well. When was your sort of first click sort of thing for you? Yeah, I, th I think the, the first milestone for me, I was age 13, my first British vest yeah. um, as a junior, going abroad without my parents and, and being exposed to another country, a different culture altogether. We went to Germany to compete and, you know, it wasn't just competing against your club mates it, it was this was the real deal for me it was probably an equivalent to what I thought an Olympics would be like um you know at the time so when I got my first British best that was a real milestone both from in my mental state but also the the attention I got from the school and you know the proud parents that that I had you know they were just over the moon by that but still you know make sure you you concentrate on your schoolwork at the yeah, same course, time um, so, you know, being able to balance the two and almost prove them wrong that I could do both um, was was tough for me. And I guess that's why I'm so good at multitasking now. But <laughs> to prove them wrong that I can do my sport and do well in school was, was definitely a challenge. But I did it. Um, but yeah, I think that was the milestone when I was 13. First British best, going abroad. Um, having to deal with different language, different culture, it, it was definitely a, 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 an eye-opener for me. So I want to go to your first World Junior event in Bulgaria. Just sort of set the scene for me. What was that like being at your actual first sort of world, world event um, at, at that level? The experience, just what was it like trying to take that all in? Yeah, I think um, my I was very lucky to have a good support network around me, i.e. my parents, but first and foremost, my coaches, you know, that they, they'd they been there, done it, got the t-shirt in, in essence in terms of that high level. So they helped me prepare to going into any competitions. And I always remember all my coaches have said to me, regardless of where you go to compete, it's still 
a 200 meters, it's still a relay, it's still a 400 meters. So don't let the environment phase you, whether it's pouring with rain or, you know, it's roasting hot or it's a different climate, whatever it is, it's still that event. So stay focused on what you train for. You put all those hours in and train for that. I think for me, um, again, another turning point was European juniors um, the last year as a junior. And um, that was the year I decided, decided to move up from 200 to 400. Uh, and that was um, definitely a, a huge move for me because 400 meters is pretty far. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a long sprint. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the different um, level of endurance, even, uh, even on the old fields at P, is just like you're just waiting for it to stop. You're like, oh my God, when's the line coming? <laughs> Absolutely, you hit it, hit the nail on the head there. Exactly what was going through my mind. Why am I doing this event? The only reason I moved up was because I'd, I'd plateaued at 200 and I wasn't getting any quicker. Uh, and I knew I had more in me. So that year in 91 European Junior Championships, I went uh, representing uh, Britain in the 400. And going into those championships, I wasn't ranked highly at all. I don't think anyone thought I'd get past the first round. But I got to the final and eventually won the, the 400, the European Junior. So that definitely for me was, again, more a test of my mental resilience because, you know, you have your critics day in, day out, whether you're a sports person or not. But that whole mindset I had is that I wanted to win. Uh, and that's all I focused on, despite going in ranked probably eighth or tenth in Europe. And then it just depends on who's best on the day, both mentally and physically. So even at that sort of junior level, is it very much you're trying to get at a peak physical condition for the competition and hopefully you don't sort of peak just before or just after? It, is it still very much at that level, working on your timing, making sure you're going in at the perfect physical condition? Absolutely. Um, you know, when we look at, um, obviously at the age of eight, that's not, that wasn't my focus. It was all the, the fun about it and enjoyment and, and it still is the enjoyment level. But when you get to a certain um, level in your sport, you have to up your game and, and that's where the mental state comes into it. Um, yeah, I think you, it, it was all down to my coaches and that whole mental preparation going into each and every one of my championships. And I always say this, you know, training isn't just about just rocking up and just training. You're training to do your best when you do compete. So don't treat it lightly. Don't get in your comfort zone. So my coaches have always pushed me to the limit in training. Um, obviously be mindful of not injuring me or anything like that. But um, yeah, it is about your, your absolute maximum optimum performance that, that you have as an individual not the person next door but just you i mean i want to sort of touch on the comment you made earlier which was you said that you jump decide to jump from 200 to 400 because your speed was again quicker i mean that being said you, you still got a silver in the four by one that year as well so obviously <laughs> the speed was still there yeah we're not talking like you know, you, you knocked out the semi-finals or anything like that. Like this, they still wanted you to be part of the relay team. I mean, there's still levels to 
<laughs> yeah, no, I know. But I was with these long legs that I just was awful at starting. And, you know, Usain Bolt has totally thrown that theory out of the window. Because, well, I mean, he's not a great starter, but, you know, he as he comes out the blocks, his second phase is just amazing. Um, it just took me a lot longer to get going. So by then the, the race is over. So, yeah, it, yeah, it's just everyone's different ability. I think, I think, uh, I think Usain, I think Usain Bolt has sort of changed what you would see as the anatomical perfect hundred meter sprinter. Because generally, we're like with Maurice Green, uh, Johan Blake, they're short, stocky, very powerful, and yeah. obviously, the the great man has uh, completely blown all of that out of the water. Yeah, I, I was just, I should have been born after him. That would have been a different story. It's like, damn, <laughs> I was born too early. So, uh, but going back to you, going back to you, so you decided after, is it after 91, you decided, right, I'm going pro. Um, yeah. But as you, but as I've sort of read, um, the funding, like the lottery funding and all that, that just wasn't there. No. So how did you, how did you juggle trying to train professionally with not having the sort of funding and backing that athletes are uh, privy to today? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely uh, one of probably very few athletes that spanned both sides. So I grew up of the era of Linford Christie and Colin Jackson, Sally Gunner, all of those great names, you know, when lottery funding wasn't around. So you literally had to rely on either your family, work, or even any local sponsors. Um, and then lottery funding came into play when I was still around. So it was like, woohoo, brilliant, I've got that support. But at the same time, I was so used to fending for myself in any case. And again, my parents were saying, you know, if that was taken away from you, if the lottery was taken away from you, could you survive? So I always had that mentality. Um, but yeah, in terms of survival, I mean, I, I saved, I saved like a crazy person as a young person. Um, and my parents instilled that in me. I think that was absolutely important. And, and just so that I didn't put any pressure on them either. So when I was able to work, I could fend for myself. Time management was huge. Um, and having that good relationship with my coaches as well. So we train in the evening. So I'll go straight to training straight after work. And then, of course, you've got the weekends and during the summer, you're, tra you're, you're either training or competing in any case. So it was a balancing act. Um, yeah, I, I won't lie. I turn up for training absolutely knackered sometimes. But my coach would always say to me, leave your baggage at the door. You're at training now. Just get your head in gear. So I got used to that way of working. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of incredible about the different level of mentalities. So for me, the sort of level I ever reached was I was at Man City's sort of football academy, um, but I didn't have I didn't have that sort of mentality you had. Mine was very much I don't I I didn't realize how privileged I was to be in that situation because I mean we're talking about two thousand and four two thousand and five now where things are very different um, because I, for me. Um, because I'd never sort of realized the position I was in. I sort of went, okay, yeah, cool training. And then I started skipping training because at that time, you know, you start, you start looking around going, ah, oh, look, girls and stuff like that. Now, obviously now I very much go, oh, geez, 
<laughs> and then and then I see very much sort of someone with like your mentality. And that's that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, like be having that mental mental toughness, which unfortunately I learned later on in life and which I very much sort of kicked myself at <laughs> at fifteen. But that's but that's the, again that's the difference between a world class athlete like yourself and uh, someone like someone like myself who had the talent but not the drive. Absolutely, and, and that is huge. And and you know when you're at that level, when you like you said you've got the talent, you have to make those sacrifices. Yeah. And you know I always used to think to myself, my sport won't always be around. My friends hopefully will be. So whatever they're out and about doing, I can catch up with that later on. Yeah. Um, and you do start working out who your true friends are. If they didn't hear from me for weeks upon end, they knew Donna was training or she was away or doing something. And then you, I can now count my good friends on one hand, you know. So those people that are saying, oh, you know, you're doing that again kind of thing, they're not real friends because they're, they're not supporting what I want to do like I would support them if they were doing something that they were good at. So, yeah, you, you have to make sacrifices. And sometimes they are tough ones, like missing out on family events, for example, because you're away. Um, but now I'm, I'm just embracing that. Now I'm not an elite athlete anymore. I, I'm enjoying it even more. So you were sort of, I, I read somewhere, you were sort of juggling work, trying to get the finances, along with your crazy training regime. What was it that made you decide, I can't, not sort of, you can't work anymore, but you need to focus full time? Because I believe that uh, you said that the 96 Olympics in, Atl- in Atlanta is what your first sort of goal was. Yeah. Definitely. So that I was working at the um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines Tourist Board. That's what I studied tourism um, as, a, as a youngster. I feel <laughs> I'm old now. Um, and, and that was my love. I just love traveling. I love different experiences, different cultures. Um, and I made that concerted decision in 96 just to, well, actually, that's not quite true. I asked whether I could go part time. Um, so then I could balance my training and work, but that, that wasn't on offer for me, unfortunately. So I had to make the decision, well, it's make or break. So I decided to give up packing my full-time job and just focus on, on my athletics that year. And it was a big ask um, because I, I'm always doing something. I like to keep busy. And then what becomes it, what happens is you're just solely focused on that next training session and your performance and that adds more that comes with that is pressure and it was it was a tough year and I was struggling but I made the games but then I thought I can't be a full-time athlete this is just not for me and I was lucky that I was approached by EDF Energy um, that in 97 a year later um, to sponsor five athletes I was one of the five. Um, they wanted to support us financially leading into the 2000 Olympics. Um, and what came as part of that package, they offered the five of us a, a part-time job. And I was lucky enough to, to get that. Um, and I was with them ever since for nearly 19 years. And, and it's those kinds of organisations we need more of for sports people. So then you can have a career, build your career, and also do your sport. I mean, it's not every athlete wants to do that, but what's difficult is that transition once you finish your sport into the world of work. They're looking for experience. How do you get your experience if you're not given the chance? So it's such a, a vicious circle. 
Um, so we do need more organisations to offer that. It's amazing that you talk about that, and it's something that I want to talk about later in the interview, but it's amazing that you as an athlete, like a, a world-renowned athlete, sort of had the same sort of issues and problems in regards to experience as the young graduates do coming out of university. You don't... It's something I never thought I'd sort of hear because I very much thought that a name recognition would get something, but quite clearly, quite clearly, not quite clearly, it's the same struggles. No, it is exactly the same. And I always say that, you know, even as an athlete, that doesn't make me better than anyone else. What we do gain as athletes, and you will resonate with this in terms of those soft skills you know, that, you know, that get up and go, the can-do attitude, all of that, and maximising your strengths. So absolutely, but we take it for granted because it's in us and that's it, you know. But, and, and the, I, I wouldn't say the average person, person who's not gone through that whole sporting mindset and ability and all of that, sometimes don't have those soft skills naturally. They have to work on it. So um, that is definitely something that I think we're, we're a little bit step ahead. It's, it's very true. It's very much because you end up getting that frustration when you, th when you look at other people who don't have that, well, no one could tell me no. I'm going to see what happens. And if I fail, I fail. And you sometimes, like you said, you very much take it for granted that you have that mindset, that you have that, uh, well, I'm going to do it if I fail. Oh, well, I tried sort of thing. Definitely. But Going back to Atlanta 96, which is my sort of first recollection of an Olympics with Michael, Michael Johnson, the gold shoes, uh, the 100 meter final with uh, Donovan Bailey, where he broke the world record. What was your, like, how, how do you take all that in being there, opening ceremony, Olympic Village, it, it was something that you achieved, that you, that you dreamt about. What was that, what was that experience like? Oh my gosh, I could relive it like it was yesterday. When I got the letter to say that I was selected, I just hit the roof. It, it, it was almost like I was in a time machine going back to when I was eight years old and watching, like I said, watching the 84 Olympic Games on TV to English schools to then European juniors. Everything just kind of, you know, it was like that. And then my parents were just absolutely over moon. It was then they realized actually, okay, <laughs> you know, this sport thing is not so bad after all. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so that whole feeling of I've done it, you know, it was, it was a relief, but then that was short lived because you realize now it's not just about getting the kit and being selected you actually have to perform now so when I got to Atlanta I was just overwhelmed by what I saw the village just seeing all the sporting heroes that you see on TV in the restaurant where you are it was just such a bizarre surreal experience but I was just taking it all in and being on the teams like I've mentioned you know Linford that you see on TV and watching how they move, how they warm up, how they prepare. I was just almost taking notes. And um, I remember they had Muhammad Ali came into the Olympic Village as well. Because he, he, he lit the torch that year, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. And, and even just being like a stone throw away from him was surreal in itself. It was just such an amazing experience. That village is everything that people talk about, you know, that 
the, the togetherness, irrespective of different teams. Everyone's just there as family. Um, and then, of course, um, back then, the 400 metres had four rounds, uh, whereas now they only have three. So you have your, your first round, your second round, semi and the final. And I only got to the second round, but I did get a personal best. So I came away with something, but I definitely came away with that experience and the people around me and I learned so so much it was it I couldn't have written it I couldn't have asked for more obviously I would have liked to have gone a bit further but at least I gave my best on that day I didn't come away running slower than what I went in well in fairness what you said now perfectly leads into Sydney 2000 um what I like to call the Kathy the Kathy Spreeman games um you were her training partner at the time um what was that like? Because she very much had the Jessica Ennis sort of pressure. She was the golden girls of that game. No one also expected her to light the torch. So that was because there was, a, because from what I vaguely remember, there was a, like, it was the first time someone of an Aborigine descent had that sort of honour. Yes. She was the golden girl. She was the probably best 400 metre woman at the time what did you did you know that she was going to light the torch or was it very much uh oh my god she's doing this sort of thing it was a well-kept secret i trained with her all summer and she didn't say a word about that and and that whole summer was again an experience i'll never forget it's an opportunity that i'm so grateful for as you say she was the best in the world at the time and I always say that to be the best, you need to surround yourself with the best because you're you're aiming that high. You need to. There's no point in being on the same level and standard that you are. Um, so having that opportunity was um, open my eyes to so much. Not only the training, but the approach, the mindset again, um, and also where we always put our role models and, and our idols on pedestals all the time, the ones we look up to. And yes, I absolutely did look up to her, but seeing her train, I realized that we're exactly the same. We're still both 400 meter runners. We're still aspiring to, to be an Olympic medalist or, or, or a champion. But the difference is, is who wants it the most on the day. And, and that that's what cut us, set us apart. Um, but yeah, she she was phenomenal. She she came to the UK to get away from those pressures in Australia. And as you say, you can imagine what that would have been like. She would have been able to step out of her front door without being mobbed. So coming here, she could just be Kathy and get on with her training in that cocoon of just focus and everything. And, and it was just such a great experience. So much so I didn't even realize I was getting fitter by the day. Um, and, and again, which is frustrating, that whole self-awareness. I was just enjoying the experience, training with her and just trying to keep up to be quite honest. Um, but yeah, and just the whole environment, her coach, my coach got on really well. So I was comfortable. Um, and, and as I said, I didn't realise how fit I and quick I was getting. So I, I recently rewatched the final, and you by far and away had the strongest finish out of anyone there. And I, I think you were like you were like a shade behind Catherine Murray. Yeah. Do you th do you sort of look back and go, why did I leave myself with that much to do in the final straight? Because you looked, as you said. You looked fairly comfortable. 
it unfortunately and also as you said it was very much a case of that on that day everyone was sort of fighting for the silver because yeah. if if Catherine as a, if once she'd got the star and once she'd gone it was very much right everyone saw battling for silver and bronze because she was away Definitely. if you look back at that home stretch and just gone why did I leave myself with so much to because you like because it was like you were the Ferrari at the time and everyone had slowed down to sort of a, a Fiat Punto Renault Clio pace and I just saw you going and I, I even remember watching the final now showing my age at the age of nine <laughs> um, and I remember I, 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 I do I do vaguely remember just you just steaming I was like oh my god she might actually do it here and I, I, I forget how close you were yeah, too no, close. Uh, yeah, not, not to relive any bad memories. Eh? <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I think I'm. Um, I say that I'm over it. I probably will never get over it. But it took me a while to rewatch that race. It, it really did. Um, gutted is an understatement. Um, not even so much. You know, I, I always think. I wish it was 410 meters. That's the only time I wish it was that little bit further. Usually you want it to be 350 because you can't wait for the line to come. But yeah, it was the, the whole mindset thing. This is why I always say you could be as fit as a fiddle, but if your mindset is not right and on point, it, it's a tough, it's a tough call. And my mental state on that line in that final was not how I was through the rounds or what I trained to do. And I changed the plan and I, should, I shouldn't have done that. Um, and, yeah, I paid the price for that, unfortunately. Did you not attack that first sort of 300 metres the way you'd attacked in the round before? No, you... I, no, complete. My first 200, I always say this, I was on a beach somewhere relaxing, drinking cocktails. I was not in the Olympic final. I was so cocooned in my own little bubble that I was determined not to run someone else's race I was going to run my own race but so much so that I was unaware of my surroundings that I was last I was last in the race and you yeah. know if I'd reacted a lot sooner all of that um I didn't react until 150 to go and 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 that's I was so way down with 150 to go I was so far down on on the leaders and yeah I mean I was happy and sad at the same time, completely over the moon for Kathy. She's been my training partner. She got me to being, you know, fourth best in the world. And, and that's how I've learned to, to overcome that disappointment, as it were. But fourth is fourth. You don't get a medal for coming fourth. So, you, you, at the end, you've got the sort of iconic picture of yourself and Kathy together. You've been the first person going over congratulating her. As someone who was also part of 2012, what was the more goosebumps for you? Twenty qualifying yourself for twenty twelve, or that four hundred meter final in Sydney? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, for different reasons, because at that point, I I just really just thought about her and what she was going through because I knew how much it meant to her and Australia as a whole. So that, I guess that's why I was probably the first person to go to. I was thinking about her and didn't even have a clue where I was. You know, that came secondary. And that's the photo of both of us looking up at the screen to see what the results were. And, you know, my name wasn't coming up. And then I saw fourth and I was just like, oh, gosh, the devastation. I could just feel it now. I feel gutted. I think, it, I think Sydney has to be the one. 
the the, the one that um, that tested my my emotions more than anything else because I, I wanted to cry and I wanted to laugh because I was happy. It was just like a juggling act. It was crazy. It's just, I mean, to be involved in an experience like that in the final of sort of the golden child of the Olympics, it's something that not many people ever experience. That, but as you say, when you went away from all that, you looked at the board, went fourth, realised I think you're like a tenth off or something, if that. Yeah, so Catherine Mary ran 49.72 and I ran... Not, not to make it any worse. No, than, I, I know. I think that's the worst thing. I, I always say that I probably would have rather come sixth than fourth that close. But you know what? I, I'm probably more well-known for coming fourth than, if, than anything else anyway. So I'll, I'll have that now. So after 2000 where you'd hope to have kicked on unfortunately injuries really started taking their toll and you got the achilles tendon injury i presume that was your first major sort of injury as an athlete what was that sort of like when you'd very much as i said you were at that stage where you could very much look to sort of the 2001 championships and pushing on to 2004 you into Athens that I was I'm presuming you want to use Olympic 2000 as the platform to push that next level to be like right not only am I going to target a medal I could potentially go for gold here so what was what was that sort of crash down to earth like for you absolutely um we always say that the Achilles is the 400 meter injury and you know, in all fairness, I, I always had Achilles problems, even back to 96, but I was always able to maintain them with, with great physios. But 2000 really took its toll on the body and the Achilles just was not having it. So 2001, no matter what we did, it just was getting worse. You know, we'd get it back on point that I could train. And 400 metres is one of those events that you just can't get away with just pure endurance and you can't get away with it with just pure speed either. And not being able to do the speed endurance stuff um, really set me back. So as you say, going into Edmonton in 2001 was like, oh, are you kidding me? Because I really thought that that would have been my year. I knew what mistakes I'd made. I've got that training behind me. And then getting to those championships where the Achilles was just like, nah, Donna, you're, you're having a laugh now. <laughs> this is enough, enough is enough. Like, I've, I've pushed you this far. So having to, to pull out... Um, of the event was devastating for me because I don't like giving up that easily, but I physically could not run on it. And no matter what the physios did, they wrapped it, they strapped it just to keep it, keep it steady, but it just wasn't happening. And Achilles pain is, is so difficult to explain what it is. You have to have it to understand it. It's an unknown pain that I can't even you know, find something that it's like. It's just crazy. As, as someone who has snapped his, has uh, snapped his left Achilles. Oh, well, then you know. I very much know what you're talking about. Like, and the frustration, because you can't, because it's a tendon, you can't do anything. anything. It's not like a muscle injury where you can massage it. It's literally the only sort of muscle or that you, literally, it's surgery and rest. You can do nothing, and 
unfortunately, unfortunately, I guess with this to sort of like be able to relay with you, it is incredibly the most painful yet frustrating. It's not even the pain in the foot; it's the mental. It's the- yeah. Yeah, because I remember like myself being sat at home and I was taking it out on absolutely everyone and it was no one else's fault. But you just can't do anything. So to be in your instance, I I couldn't I couldn't imagine, especially the way you were peaking as well. Exactly. And as you say, I always said um the Achilles has got a mind of its own because one day, oh yeah, I'm making progress. And the next day you're back to square one. And almost every morning you're dreading putting your foot down as you get out of bed because you just don't know how it's going to be. See, I know you know exactly where I'm coming from. 150. (laughs) It's bizarre. It's not not like any other injury. Not that I've had many, but, you know, like you said, a hamstring, you know, you ice that and it will repair and all of that. But there's so little blood supply to the Achilles. To, to, for it to repair and it's, it is just rest but when you're in the position where you can't rest where does that leave you so it's very very frustrating I wish I wasn't in the position where I understood your pain but I understand your pain <laughs> <laughs> um, do you ever feel that after the Achilles injury you were the same in terms of your level of fitness and conditioning because n- not not to sound not to sound like a, like an ass like I may do. It it seems like you can never sort of achieve the level and the peak fitness that you did at uh, in Sydney in two thousand. Yeah, well, I missed after that. I had three operations, so it took me two, three, two and a half years to get back. Uh, when I say get back, get back to be able to run with no pain, um, which led me into two thousand and four. But um, it, it did change me absolutely and I, I would say it changed me for the better mentally it made me mentally stronger um simply because I know there again the critics are out there writing me off and saying Donna's done and this that and the other but I was like no way I'm not done I know 4979 can't just disappear um but at the same time I was getting older so you know it's trying to regain that fitness again and i had to almost start from scratch and go back to doing two 100s and 200s build up my speed and then the endurance would come so it was almost like i was going back to when i was eight years old again going backwards and and trying to regain that muscle memory again as it were so i did get back to some level of fitness and was on my way um you know 2004 was more, not not so much about getting to the final and all of that because I knew that would be a big ask but just getting the vest of being selected to go to my third Olympic Games was just like yes you know I'm, I'm back I'm back you know and and that was one of those moments where I am just happy to be wearing my vest I don't care what happens I'm just happy to get on the track and, and do what I can do um, but yeah, it was, it was tough mentally. And of course, you know, back then things that athletes support now is so much better than when I was coming through the ranks, you know, you've got your psychologist, you've got all your nutrition support, you've got your performance lifestyle support there, all of that, the lottery as well. And all of that, you know, the athlete support is great now. Um, but what I did have was the best that I could have had at that time. So I'm not knocking that either. Yeah, the the advancements in sports science from 
the last 10 years never mind never mind from sort of 2000 it's it's night and day sort of because people did people at the time they didn't think you needed a psychologist for mental block you, people won't really think about your biomechanics of running or anything like that so i i com- completely understand where you're coming from i mean with what i said you know in terms of you not reaching sort of 2000 but you still won bronze medals at helsinki and in osaka for in the world championships what was what was that like you know like the world level what was just being on that being on the rostrum world championships after a crippling injury like what was that like for you yeah i think you know any athlete is happy with any medal but when you know that it's great getting a relay medal but you want the individual medal so it's almost like a bittersweet feeling that you get you're over the moon that you've got a medal that's fantastic i'm still part of the team and i'm happy for the girls and and, and the team as a whole but at the same time you want that individual medal and still that that's the the thing i mean even now i think oh should i go and dust off my spikes and try for it um, because i haven't had that you know and that that's the disappointing side of things for me is that i would have liked to have had an individual medal at the olympics and the world champs yes i've got commonwealth um not europeans but i have got commonwealth but yeah it, it, it's that bittersweet feeling i mean that's just the competitive mindset of an athlete though it's never it's never enough is it never enough no. You, could have, you could have you could have won the gold in the relay you'd have been you'd still been yeah but i wanted the individual gold like so i completely understand where you're coming from um <laughs> I mean, but that's what that's what separates an athlete though isn't it that's it's that individualism that makes you what you are especially in athletics sort of tennis um stuff like that stuff that very much you against the world you need that individual mindset so i completely understand where you're coming from um but now pushing on 2009 um you announced your retire you announced your retirement for reasons that were completely out of your control uh you've been diagnosed with breast cancer yeah um what was i i guess i have a feeling but I guess I still have to ask, what was that sort of like when you got the diagnosis and just how did it hit you? Yeah, um, that 2009 was definitely another milestone year for me. Um, that year, I decided to do the 400s indoors, which I'd never done before. Bizarrely, I'd always do 200 indoors despite my long legs, but I loved doing the 200. It was always my event. I loved it. Um, and then that year I thought I'm going to try something different. I need that spark of, you know, determination, you know, it's kind of just going through the motions and did okay indoors over the event. It was pretty hard doing two laps. Um, and especially the tight bends, but I thought I needed something different just to ignite that spark again from getting ready for outdoors. Um, so the May of that year, um, I found a lump and I was just like, "Mm, maybe it's because, been training hard maybe I'm a bit run down because I'd had glandular fever years ago you know just being that whole body aware um and then I thought well it's not changing as all the doctors advise you keep an eye on it and see if things are changing and it's changing shape and all of that but it, it wasn't so I went to the GP um and 
she was just she's like well regardless it probably need to be removed yeah. so cutting a long story short went through that whole process of getting um a lumpectomy getting that removed and literally two weeks later i was back in a competition i know it's nuts so right. while that that the lump had gone off for a biopsy to check it all out i was back competing in agony might i add um but at that point no one knew what was going on only my immediate family and of course my coach um so then when i came back and got the results that it, i was diagnosed with the early stages of breast cancer it was like you know you're talking to me kind of thing it it, it, it just knocked me for six I, I just didn't know how to it was almost like an out-of-body experience when the surgeon said it to me and i was like you can't be talking to me i'm fit i'm well no no family history no nothing um and i always say this it was when my athlete head kicked in it was like okay fine what do we need to do next let's move on from this you've told me the bad news let's move on and it it was definitely another te life test yeah. of me as an individual and you know culturally uh, we don't talk about cancer very much it's a taboo conversation you don't you don't tell your story you don't tell people your business um you know if 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 you you pray and everything will be fine and all of that and 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 it, it was really tough to tell my parents in all honesty but i had to put on that brave face because if i'm worrying they will worry uh, and i just had to put that brave face on um, so yeah, it, it was definitely a testing time for me. So to in and froing, to in and froing, um, cut a long story short, the December of that year, I decided to have a mastectomy, um, purely because of the, the, the information I was presented to me in terms of it could come back if I just went down the journey of just having radiotherapy or chemo. Um, so I opted for let's just cut to the chase. I, I can't be flapping with, with going through that. You know, at the end of the day, my, my mindset was I'm still me, even if a part of me has been taken away. And I say the bad bit of me has been taken away. Um, I'm still me. And unless I tell my story, that's going to raise the awareness of, of being that whole body aware, especially in our culture where it's not spoken about. Um, so I felt that it was probably a sign that, you know, it's not a nice thing to go through. And I was lucky. I say I was lucky. I didn't have to go through any chemo or, or any radiotherapy. So I was probably one of the lucky ones. Mastectomy is no small decision. though. Um, did, how much thinking time did you require to say, right, I'm going to do the mastectomy? Um, a lot a lot so I, I i got the the results in the june and i spoke to everyone that was close to me and knew me my coach my physio who who got me through thick and thin with my achilles my parents my sister my friends and each and every one of them said to me donna it's up to you it's wow. got to be your decision you know it's your body I was like, great. I was hoping someone would just tell me what to do, but you know, I understand where they were coming from. And I have this alter ego called Diane. Um, and she often is the one that is telling me, just sort yourself out, stop the crying and stop being silly and all of that. And, and it, then I just thought, you know what, let me just do this. I'll just do it. And 
And then I think my mindset would have been a little bit more settled with the years that were to follow. I mean, thank you very much for sharing that story. Like you said, it's very much uh, stuff, stuff that was big, like your cancers and stuff like that. It's very much not talk, talked about within society and, and culture. But So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, so you went through sort of that trial. You came through the other side. London 2012. What made you think, right, I'm going to give this one last crack? what what was it that that what was it that made you after everything you've been through after what you'd achieved that you wanted to crack at London 2012 yeah so um 2010 was definitely the turning point when I was recovering and, and trying to get back to dressing myself and just getting myself my head back in gear um and I thought I need to do something I need to not just tell my story because my parents were adamant, don't tell anyone what you've gone through and this and the other, don't hang out your dirty laundry. And I was like, no, I feel I need to, to tell my story as a black woman. And I know the black and Asian community do not want to talk about it. And also just highlight that um, cancer doesn't discriminate. Mm -hmm. You know, I was fit, healthy and all of that. So I said to my coach, I said, you know what? Um, for my peace of mind as well, you know, I, I, I retired because of what I was going through, but I don't feel like I'm done yet. And I want to finish on my terms, not because of what I'd gone through. So he says, you know what, let's do this. And I, I, by then I was working full time. So it was another juggling act again, going to training and trying to fit in work and everything. Because it wasn't a part time gig at all by then. So um, I started back training and no one knew, why are you crazy, Donna? Why are you coming back to training when you've retired? You must be wanting to put your feet up. And I was like, no, you know, I miss you all and I want to get back. And then um, leading into 2012 at the trials, was that same day at, at the trials um, was when my story was announced in the newspapers. And I remember standing on the line and by then people would have heard about why I'd come back. And to get a stand innovation, excuse me, sneeze, um, to get a stand innovation, uh, just, I just, oh gosh, I've got to sneeze so much today. Um, I just got a stand innovation. I, I just crumbled on the line. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to get around this 400 meters? This is too much. This is too much. But I just felt that, um, by doing that was, as I said, it was on my terms, but at the same time, telling my story was to inspire other women and men who, who get breast cancer, um, that unfortunately there are others that weren't as lucky as me. You know, they have to go through the chemo, which is just both mentally and physically testing. Um, but it's the positivity. That was my message more than anything else. Uh, and that has just created a whole new network that I'm involved in both from breast cancer now as an ambassador, but people feel comfortable coming to me and telling me their story. And it's just another listening ear, which is, um, I've become a, I say I'm the counsellor, not that I'm qualified or anything, but just to have a conversation, it, it is so powerful. Being an outlet for people, for like you say, people who would very much keep their stories to themselves, it's a bur it is a burden as as you as I'm sure you're you're more than aware, but it's also at least you're an outlet for someone 
for someone not doing self-destructive harm. Definitely. So, um, again, like I said, I'm very grateful that you shared your story and hopefully people that listen to it would be inspired by that. I hope so. And I am accessible. So, you know, anything, there's so many people that I've spoken to, they just want to offload, you know, family, you know, they're there to support us, but when they don't know what to say, that's the difficulty and uh, uh, because they're not living it. They want to say the right thing, but usually it's the wrong thing and they just don't know. So to speak to someone who understands that whole emotional roller coaster that they're going through, I think that's my calling in life at least. Oh, but it's, 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 a, it's something that people can reach out to you though, that they feel comfortable enough to speak to you that your story has made them go, you know what, I can speak about my story. And as you say very much, with your family, there's always unfortunately that personal element where they they want to say the right things, but they don't know if they're not entitled to, but if it's okay for them to say the right things. And sometimes, like you say, you just very much want them to say, listen, be quiet, get on with it, not, uh <laughs> spot on absolutely that's exactly what i said i don't want to be wrapped in cotton wool just i'm still donna just be if you have to tell me off tell me off don't step on eggshells around me just just do what you'd normally do i'm you know i'm, I'm still me you know and, and they got used to that they did struggle at first but they got used to it especially my mum <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, hey man, you always need a one over on your mum like i still need a one over on my mum and my grandma from time to time so i completely get it don't worry so 2012 you you managed to get back to a position which i presume in 2000 time 2009 you never thought was possible you retired now on your terms um you're now sort of like us in the open wide world going okay what's next um did edf come to you or did you go to edf then when you when you sort of officially officially retired so i in 20 we'd already had agreed that you know i i'll come back full-time in 2010 so um, they, they knew that and they were absolutely fine. So then when I'd gone through all, all my breast cancer journey, I was back in. And, but for me, it was like, oh, there's an empty space there now. <laughs> Almost. I'm not training anymore. I mean, it was great in the winter when I was looking out and thinking, oh, I don't have to go out in that. Um, that, that was brilliant. I love that. But um, there was that gap. And I just felt I needed to fill that gap. Hence why um, I, I just embraced the whole ambassadorship with breast cancer now, because that was all part of my healing process as well, which was brilliant. Um, and then I, any opportunity, because that whole breast cancer journey changed my mindset. If opportunity knocks, open that door wide as much as possible. So anything that was, Donald, would you want to do this? I'm like, yes, 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 yes. I'm there, I'm there, I'll do this because I, I you know, none of us know how long we're on this earth for. Um, so then that started to build. Um, and then that's how I got involved with our Bain Network at EDF Energy, mm -hmm. got involved with them and my love for ED and I just developed from there. And again, that gap just grew, my network grew. and. It's just it just happened overnight. It feels like, but the gap was soon filled very quickly. So you'd been at EDF um, for well, you've been part of their program since 
1997. You finally decided to leave in, is it 2016, I believe? Um, was it the opportunity, uh, did the opportunity at UK Athletics open up or did UK Athletics come to you? Yeah, so I, I was headhunted um, and what they were actually looking for was someone who had that athletic experience and, and involvement and then also that work experience from an EDNI perspective as well. So I, I fitted that bill and I was pleased because I always said, oh no, I wouldn't want to work within athletics, especially when you still got that bit of athletics running through your veins thinking, oh, I can get back and, <laughs> and run again. Um, so I really tried hard to remove myself so I could regain the love of it for the right reasons and not thinking, oh, maybe I could make it, you know, it, I just needed to completely remove myself. So when this opportunity came up, I was like, yes, I'm ready. Let's do this. I'm ready to go back in, not Donna the athlete, but Donna as the career person with some skills and knowledge that can bring back to the sport. Yeah. So what does your role as uh, within ED and I, EDNI, sorry, in UK athletics, what does that really entail? And so, what is that all about, really? Yeah, yeah. So, there's a double edged sword with, with the role. One is around our behaviors and how we are, who we are as an organization, the perception of, of our sport. And um, again, that's all around our processes. For example, how are we recruiting? Um, where are we recruiting from? Is it inclusive? Is it diverse? All of that. Um, one thing that I quickly identified and many other sports are going through this at the moment is um, our sport, and I always say this, athletics is the most diverse sport, I think, um, in terms of gender, ethnicity. We've got a para cohort of athletes as well. So that there, there's not many that, that sports that can say that. What it doesn't do at the moment is within the organisation, it doesn't quite represent the sport that we serve. So we have a lot of work to do in that space. So that's my role on one side. The other side also is we're um, aiming to achieve the equality standard in sport, which we're currently at the intermediate level and we're going for the advanced level, which is the highest level. In simple terms, what that means is us as an organization holding up a mirror and looking at ourselves through an EDI lens and how we're operating, what initiatives have we got in place for underrepresented groups, and if there are any grey areas or gaps, what are we doing to, to, um, to identify them and put things in place from a positive action perspective. So that's my role in that piece, but it has grown. Um, me being me, I, I like to do things outside the box. Yeah. And, and it not be a tick box exercise. ED and I shouldn't be, you know, a nice to have. It should be a should have because we need to, to be reflective of the audience that we serve. Now, I know organisations at the moment, it's, everyone's talking about it now. You know, every, I was the first person to have this job. Um, so I, the beauty of that is I can make it my own and make it relevant to our sport. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that whole, it, it's, been, it's been a journey, to say the least. I guess, I guess unfortunately, I guess I wouldn't go amiss. Um, has the Black Lives Matter movement, has it really sort of helped shine a spotlight that you've been championing for from years and years, but has it, in the unfortunate circumstances, but with everything that's going around it, has it really helped push the, ED, the EDNI movement within UK athletics itself? 
Yeah, I think what the turning point for us, even before the BLM uh, movement, is our leadership. And I'm always saying that I could do all the groundwork in, within my role and within my remit, but I have to have the leadership buy-in. And I don't feel I had that before. We've now got a new leadership uh, team in place. We've got a new CEO, we've got a new chair, we've got a new CFO, and they've been absolutely brilliant. In the last few months that they've been in post, the support that I'm getting, the drive, and, and when I say, uh, what, like I said earlier, the tick box exercise, I'm not feeling that from them. They are so invested and authentic about the support. Um, it's genuine and rather than them saying to me, this is what we want, they, they're, they're having conversations with me. What do we need to do as a sport? And that's what an organization needs to be doing. So unfortunately, as you say, due to what's recently happened, it has put the whole ED and I gender to the top of everyone's priority at the moment, but ours has always been there and it's been sustainable. But now the whole thing around ethnicity, we have to look at it. Uh, we've got no, no choice but to. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a case of one UK athletics doing anything before and stuff. It's more a case of, I was just more asking because when I look at something like Formula One, because I'm a, I'm a massive not only my massive into my football and stuff like that, I love my Formula One as well. And then when I sort of see what Lewis Hamilton as probably the greatest driver the sport has ever seen and the palaver they're sort of, as an organisation they're doing in terms of everything's very rushed, the drivers don't seem together. It's, it was more just a, more of a clarity of the difference between what UK Athletics as an organisation is doing yeah. compared to what Formula One are saying they're doing but what is actually sort of live for the millions and millions um because like even given the last race it was very much rushed the drivers don't really seem to be unified and unfortunately like in motorsport is unfortunately a, a sport which is not ethnically diverse at all very very much caucasian dominated and i fully agree with you that uk athletics is one of the most ethnically diverse and inclusive sports um in the country and maybe in the world um but unfortunately it doesn't get the same recognition as your footballs or your crickets because the funding and the sort of notoriety just isn't there unfortunately absolutely i totally agree with you and and the, the whole edni topic for me is you know, and I keep saying this, we've got to put our money where our mouth is. You know, we can talk till we're blue in the face saying we're doing this, we're doing that. But what action, you know, is it having that ripple effect to our fans, to our staff, to our athletes and so forth? So although, and I always say this, and I'm not being biased at all, is athletics is always targeted when it's bad news. Uh, you know, they, they will throw everything at us. But all the good stuff that we do, we're quite modest with it. We don't talk about it as much and we need to improve on that because there's some great stuff. We've got some great people in our sport. We do not shine the spotlight on them as much as we should. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because apart from sort of Mo Farah and Jess Ennis Hill, uh, people do seem to forget that James Rutherford won a gold medal on Super Saturday and his name is not out there as the two I've mentioned. And it's very much, unfortunately... 
when people like Dwayne Chambers, who wasn't, he was, he, he was at the time the best male UK sprinter we have. And the sort of his fall from grace, uh, Tim Montgomery, um, even Johan Blake and Asif Opal and um, Nesta Carter, it's always very much steroids, testosterone, any sort of, well, why would you want to go in athletics? Because you can never do it without drugs. And it's never, ever sort of, well, look what we achieved on that Super Saturday. Um, the UK men, uh, the UK men's 4x100 relay team, Dina Asher-Smith, it's never, like, she was in the news for like a week, maybe two, and sort of, like, you've not really heard much since. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, not to not to not to rub salt in the not to rub salt in the wounds or anything. It's no, just, we do we do get the short straw a lot of the time, um, but we definitely need to shout from the rooftops ourselves. We can't always rely on media to do that for us. We have to do it ourselves. And um, you know, even around the the whole race conversation, we've delivered. Um, let's talk about race sessions to our athletics family over the last month or so and that's the first time we've engaged that way to open the conversation without knowing what's going to be said but giving the voice and a platform for our athletics family to talk about that and it's been welcomed with open arms and and and, and that's the thing we need to be more engaging with with society and our athletics family i guess unfortunately i wouldn't go amiss as we sort of come to the close um Bianca Williams and uh, Ricardo Dos Santos and sort of the fallout of that. Um, as much as you say that there are progress, there is progressive steps being made, we're still very much in a bubble where that could have that couldn't that could have been like myself. It could have been someone else that doesn't have their name recognition, and the situation could have been so much different. Um, what do you think is what what more do you think it's going to take for movements for EDI movements to actually be wholly accepted and for big corporations to actually hold accountability and responsibility openly which we still seem to be struggling to do in this country definitely I think you, you've um, used the correct word accountability um, for us, I, I always say this, we need to get our own house in order first. And when I say our own house, I mean UK athletics and lead in terms of what we're saying and we are doing. In terms of from a society perspective, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change overnight. You know, now we've got social media, we're seeing it more and more um, than, than when 20 years ago, you know, it was happening, but we never heard about it as much. Society needs to change and I really do believe that whole education is key and, and, and you know with this whole racism I always say this that you know it's a learned behavior you know you're not born a racist born absolutely, absolutely. Not, which you I, I can't understand anyone who would think that it's learned behavior and we have to break that cycle and that comes from education from schools the parents responsibility accountability all of that but at the same time, there's some people out there that we will never change their minds. That's, that's how they are, and that's fine. But what we can do is work with the people who do believe in that. And whether you're black, green, purple, or, or white, those are our allies. We have to have that collective voice. 
And this Black Lives Matters, I know there's many people out there, the cynics are saying, oh, well, it's a flash in the pan. We can't allow it to be a flash in the pan. This has to continue until change starts happening. And it may not happen in my lifetime, in all honesty. I hope it does. But for, for my nieces and nephews, I hope it is a better society for them. Why do you believe there's such a, a clash of heads in terms of equality, in terms of racial equality? Like, why, why do you feel that someone, especially someone, I'd like to get your opinion, with being in the EDI movement, why do you believe there's such a sort of clash of heads with the old guard? Why is it so, sometimes you're banging your head against the wall trying to get basic equal rights that everyone should be entitled to like why do you think there's such a struggle it's historical it, it it's it's ingrained in systems way before i was even born it probably even way before my parents were born mm. it's ingrained it's systemic for me i think the more voices and, and the young people now are, are not afraid to speak up anymore and that's where the cycle is going to start to change but as I said, it's not going to probably happening in my lifetime, but I don't think that we should stop that momentum. I don't feel it should be a flash in the pan. It isn't a flash in the pan in my eyes, hence why I'm driving that agenda. What I do find in the experience that I've had is everyone is so much more com comfortable talking about gender equality and LGBT plus equality. But when it comes to race, it's a different story. Yes, the experiences are different, but it's the same framework. It's yeah. equality. 100%. I've also found within my sort of career and life that people don't want to talk about the race conversation because they feel uncomfortable or they choose to believe there's not racial inequality. Um, when I, from first-hand experience, and I'm pretty sure yourself from first-hand experience, very much know that there there's massive differences like it's it's just a fact um so going back to the whole bianca williams ricardo de santa situation as ed as the head of ed and i what have you been involved in sort of what happens next with with sort of the involvement and the support for bianca and ricardo and uh, how, how are they both after that situation? Absolutely. So Bianca, obviously being a funded athlete, um, it is our, as an NGB, our responsibility to reach out. So she's had support from different angles, indirectly or directly from both our CEO. I have reached out to her. And also um, I've got an EDNI advocate group within um, UK Athletics and there's a particular member in there who has been giving Bianca some support. I'm not up to speed with where we are in terms of how she is but she knows that she has the support from us as an NGB. No, I was just wondering, thank you. Um, yeah. Finally as we sort of come to the close of uh, the interview, where where would you like to see sort of Edia now within UK Athletics in the next sort of five years? Oh, five. I was going to say in the next two years, but anyway. So you're just... <laughs> next, next, next two years, then I, like, I always go for five because people, people always complain two years is a short time span. So yeah, two years, let's, let's go. <laughs> no, definitely. I, you know, if I go back to, um, as an NGB, we have to adhere to a code for sport governance. Mm -hmm. And within that, we have to have at least 30% women on boards. Now I'm pushing those boundaries that we should have 
percentage of ethnicity and a percentage of disability because though that's those are the areas that replicate within our sport so we need to push those boundaries probably i'd be challenged in terms of quotas and targets but for me if we are not in a even keel in the first instance then we need to put some targets in place to, to make sure positive actions there at the same time we don't want it to be a tick box exercise where you just put someone in there of color or someone with a disability just to make up the numbers they also have to have those skills so in answer to your question i would like to see uk athletics within the organization at all levels from board to senior management to the workforce as a whole representing the sport that we serve and also society in the uk because it's extremely diverse yeah um well now i guess uh with with the light that's been shined on it if there's ever going to be a time for change it's it's now or never if because uh, I've, I've had the same conversations if it doesn't happen now I don't think it will ever happen. I totally agree. Donna, thank you very, very much for your time. Um, I look forward to you lacing your shoes for 2021 in Tokyo, since uh, you've got a year to train now. So <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. They delayed. They delayed it for you. Not the virus. They delayed it for you, so you can get play. But genuinely, I, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest today and I genuinely look forward to speaking to you again very very soon and genuinely I hope to meet you once this is all over and we can actually have a proper sit down conversation face to face it's been an absolute pleasure likewise thank you and thanks for having me thank you very much so guys that's the end of the show Hanif will bring you the second hour and we'll be right back stay tuned <laughs>